Riders with Gerard Hindmarsh, a very famous name and a fascinating story, our aviation pioneer, Jean Batten. One of them anyway, but remarkable for her youth and at the time, of course, her gender. But it was a bit of a thing at the time. Amelia Earhart was zipping about the place at the same time. Uh, Gerard, she's a fascinating story and a true outsider. Yeah, truly, uh, Jean Gardner Batten. She's our greatest aviator, without a doubt. She was born on the 15th of September 1909. She has many awards to her name, Commander of the British Empire and a Order of the Southern Cross, the first person awarded who wasn't in royalty, actually. She's very well acclaimed. She got the French Legion of Honour. She literally became the best-known New Zealander of of the 1930s. She was known throughout the world for her record-breaking flight, including the first solo flight from England to New Zealand in 1936. You know, we, we've got to see uh, here, Graham. it was the era of the hugely publicised long-distance record-breaking flights. It was the first whiff, I think, of sort of fast trans continental travel and people got genuinely excited about it. I suppose even just the thought of travelling from Britain to Australia in a matter of weeks at the most, something of a madman's dream. Oh, you know, how could you do it? Exactly. It opened up the world of travel and the people were coming out of the depression and there was kind of like this, this hope that they weren't contained anymore and people just got onto the bandwagon. They were excited about it. They couldn't get enough of these aviators like Amy Johnson and Kingsford Smith and Bert Hinkler and Amelia Earhart a little bit later on. But she's been the subject of quite a lot of films and docos and things like this. Ian McKellersley, her sort of biographer, if you like, he made a very good film about her in 1988 called Garbo of the Skies. But TVNZ commissioned a documentary recently called Jean. It was a very good portrayal of her, actually, although they did sort of concentrate, obviously, on some of her quirks. Jean was played by Kate Elliott. She was a dead ringer for the part, too, and it concentrated on the preparation for her record flight out and Miranda Harcourt played the mother now Jean's mother played a huge part in her life and as a lot of people say that she was determined to play out her own ambitions through her prodigy daughter if you like yeah she does seem a little obsessive from what I can glean Suffocating and controlling is a couple of words that's used quite frequently. She had a neurotic energy, and there was one scene in particular in that latest doco. They had a running scene on the beach, and the mother put her daughter through this incredible fitness program as part of the whole kind of getting ready for the flight. But the family operated in a bit of a crucible, really. They came from a rather unhappy upper-class sort a professional home and it's been certainly downplayed in the heroic narrative and I suppose that's okay I mean everyone's dysfunctional in a way but Jean had a lot of quirks she was very ambitious and she knew how to play her role she had very striking looks she had a very glamorous appearance at receptions and she always took a white silk dress with her on her record 
breaking flights and she could just slip into it. And she always made a point of repairing her lipstick just before exiting her aircraft. You can see why she's picked up that reputation, but the other thing she was singled out for is the way that she played relationships to get what she wanted. There's no doubt about that, but it was all part of this sort of crazy character that she was. And she really did become a true outsider, particularly in her later life when she became so reclusive. No one even knew she died for years and years and years. She was just buried in a pauper's grave without anyone realising. So from this fame she was propelled into, went totally eccentric towards the end of her life. But I think it's worth going right back. They play out the famous parts of her life in these docos and things, but I think it's worth going right back, Graham, to um, when she was born on the 15th of September 1909. She was actually born Jane Batten. Very soon her name sort of metamorphosed into Jean with the family and also with her, even as a toddler. She was born to Frederick Batten, a dental surgeon, and Alan Batten. They lived in Rotorua. He was a very prominent dentist and quite well-to-do. They shifted in 1913 to Auckland, with her two older brothers and the changing point of their life came in 1917 when when her father, who was the dentist, he volunteered to join the New Zealand Expeditionary Force and was sent to the Western Front. Now, the loss of his earnings in particular, it caused great financial hardship for the family and Batten was moved from ladies' school in Parnell just to an ordinary state school. And the mother had great plans for this daughter, but they weren't anything like the father's. And the father really wanted his daughter to be a musician. She underwent a lot of musical training and stuff. And when Frederick, the father, returned uh, in 1919... From the First World War. Yeah, from the First World War. Their parents just didn't get on and they quarrelled endlessly. And around 1920, they separated. Now... Her mother, Jean's mother, Ellen, she literally took her to live in Howick, where Jean attended a local convent school. And they returned to the city about 1922. Frederick, the father, he paid for her to board at Ladies College in Remuera, so he was back on the income then. They were sort of an upper-class family, if you like. Now, Batten's ambition to learn to fly developed in the 1920s and she got on to the hugely publicised long-distance record-breaking flights. She was inspired by it even as a teenager and her mother, to um, to whom she uh, sort of maintained this incredibly close relationship throughout her whole life, she encouraged her new ambition. Yeah, apparently I've read that on the wall beside her cot when she was just an infant Alan, her mother, pinned a newspaper picture of the French pilot Louis Bréviol who'd just flown the English Channel uh, which is kind of an amazing thing seeing as to how it worked out 
Yeah, and I think as her, her mother had the similar ambitions, but she realised she could only live them through her daughter now. Right. Yeah, and there was no doubt about it. She was a very kind of manipulative woman. Anyway, in 1929, she took Batten on a holiday to Sydney. It actually arranged for her to meet the Australian aviator Charles Kingsford Smith. It must have been quite a letter she'd sent him or something, but anyway, she arranged for not only to meet him but to go up in the air with him. Wow! Yeah. Now that is something else. It's quite something, isn't it? You know, her mother was very active in this whole thing and a year later Batten sailed to England with her mother and she began to learn to fly at the London Aeroplane Club. Now, by December, now that she was only 19 or 20 at this stage, she gained her A licence and she had her eye on breaking the woman's record flight from England to Australia. Now, that's quite an ambition to suddenly get from getting your licence, Graham, to suddenly wanting to break the cross-world record. You know, she thought big all the way to fund her commercial pilot's licence, she was very skillful at obtaining commercial sponsorship. So Batten borrowed money from a, in the first instance, from a young New Zealand pilot, a man called Fred Truman, and uh, he really wanted to marry her, actually. And after completing her B licence in December 1932, as soon as she got the licence, she wanted nothing more to do with them. Mm-hmm. She raised money by taking advantage of her relationships with men. I think it was a theme that continued throughout her flying career, actually. Just reading New Zealand history online, and there's one quote in there, raising money by taking advantage of her relationships with men was a theme that continued throughout her entire flying career. Wow. Yeah. Okay. We'll take our first break and come back with the story of Jean Batten, probably more complex than a lot of people may think. Uh, Weekend Variety Wireless. Jean Batten, born in 1909 in Rotorua, has made it to England. She's just so close with her mother, um, her mother divorcing from her father, and uh, there's a really, really strong connection there. Maybe her mother's living uh, vicariously achieving through her daughter. Wouldn't be the first time. It's often done. But anyway, Jean is keen to do something big. Now that she's got her pilot's licence, she's raising money one way or another, (laughs) hooking up with the bloke and then unhooking. But anyway, whose name is Fred Truman. People's ears in the last stanza may may have stood on end. Freddie Truman, or people's ears, cricket fans. Uh, I don't think it's the fast bowler, Jared. No, he was an aviator, actually. All similar interests. He moved in those circles. Fred Truman was a New Zealand pilot serving in the Royal Air Force. He wanted to marry, and he lent her the money to fund her 100 hours of flying time for her A licence. Then she completed her uh, B licence, and she left Truman and then turned to a Victor Dory, and he was another aviator. She convinced him to borrow £400 from his mother to buy Jean a gypsy moth bike. 
biplane. Now, Batten made two unsuccessful attempts at this point to beat Amy Johnson's time to Australia. So she went straight into it. It was quite incredible. And in April 1933, she had a few mishaps. Um, in one of them, she hit two sandstorms before the engine failed and she wrecked the aircraft and she crash-landed near Karachi. Returning to London, she couldn't persuade Dory to get some more money from his mother for another aircraft, so she immediately turned to the Castrol Oil Company for sponsorship here. Lord Wakefield headed the Castrol Oil Company. He was quite infatuated with her, and he actually bought her a second-hand gypsy moth for £240. He became a very long-term supporter of her, and she made another attempt in April 1934, but she ran out of fuel at night on the outskirts of Rome and she crashed into a maze of radio masts. Now, she nearly severed her lip right off in that little accident actually, but the plane was repaired and she flew it back to London where she borrowed the lower wings from the aircraft from her new fiancé actually, stockbroker Edward Walter for a third attempt. She's having a few mishaps here. She's obviously driven She's brave and adventurous, but is it slightly reckless as well? The actual accidents left her considerably in debt, and at the time she felt very humiliated. She thought maybe she was just being too ambitious, but as I said, Lord Wakefield, he was a prominent British sportsman, head of Castrol Oil, he came to her assistance again and encouraged her to get back in the air. Now, Jean was ready in April 1934 to set out on her second attempt, her really big second attempt. She set out on her third attempt at a solo flight to Australia. This time, luck was completely with her, and she experienced some very anxious moments, actually, but she arrived safely at Darwin 14 days and 22 hours, 10 minutes after leaving Kent. Now, this gave her the woman's record for the flight, and it bettered the time established by Miss Amy Johnson by over four days. So mm. she was now on the international books, if you like. I'm just considering that flight. People would be expecting her and all the stop-offs. How, do we know how many stop-offs there were? At least 12. Well, there would be fuel dumps waiting for her. What a terrific amount of organisation, Graham, at little aerodromes and airfields. There were a couple of places that airfields had to be made for her even, going down through Africa and stuff. It was just amazing. She really was an incredible aviator. She had nerves of steel. There was no doubt about it. Mia must have had. And we must remember as well, no radar in those days. Yeah, exactly. And, you know, she had some close calls, just incredible. There was one time her plane conked out. She couldn't get it started. She was only feet from the sea and just suddenly started the plane and took off again. Oh, my goodness. She had to go through sandstorms and typhoons, low-pressure systems through Asia. Oh, it was just absolutely amazing. 
But after she got to Australia, she actually came on by sea to New Zealand with her aeroplane because the Tasman crossing was still quite a big thing and she wasn't quite prepared for that. She was given a huge welcome back here in her own country and she was made a guest to the government and she undertook a six-week tour of New Zealand and at a reception in Wellington, the Prime Minister, George Forbes, he announced that the government wished to show the appreciation and she received £500, a lot of money in those days, and because her plane, uh, that little gypsy moth, it only uh, cost £240. And during her stay in Wellington, she was the guest of the Governor-General, Lord Bledisloe and Lady Bledisloe at Government House, and um, a most interesting experience for her, actually, on that New Zealand tour. She took a 101-year-old woman for a flight. It was quite incredible, Graham, when you think of it. This is her first return back after going to England as a 19 year old. So she's got England to Australia under her belt, but she's planning now for the really big flight, England to New Zealand. Right. And it might seem strange to think you go all fly all the way to Australia and not just do the last bit to New Zealand. But apparently it was really, really treacherous. We've spoken before of some of our new early New Zealand aviators just disappearing in the weather. And it's very unpredictable, thousand-odd miles of complete uncertainty, really. Right. It's all water. They didn't have the weather forecasts either that we have today, of course. We basically went out into the unknown. Right. And her trip to Australia would have been hop, hop, hop. Yeah. Keeping to land all the way. Yeah. And there was no stretch like that anywhere else coming down to Australia. But Jean went to Melbourne to broadcast on the finish of the... um, England to Australia air race that was on and she decided to fly back from Australia to England to see the Jubilee of King George V and she set out from Darwin in April 1935. Now this is where she had this amazing incident over the Timor Sea where she had complete engine failure, she couldn't start it. She just managed to start it as the uh, wheels of the plane were almost touching the sea. It was she really shook her confidence actually for much of that flight. And you've got to remember with her, she never took a life jacket. And she used to tell people, if I go down in the sea, no one must look for me. I've chosen to make the flight and I'm confident I can make it. And I have no wish to imperil the lives of others or cause trouble and expense to my country. That's pretty honourable, actually, isn't it? isn't it? Oh, it really is. Feel compelled to go and look. But considering if you don't know where a person is, they're going to be bobbing around in the sea days after. It's... Nah. Exactly. That's it. Join the food chain. Not to even take a life jacket. It's quite amazing, isn't it? Yeah. But what good would a life jacket be if nobody knows where you are? Well, exactly. And then it keep you alive a bit longer for shark bait, I suppose. Yeah. Uh, But she really upped the notch when she bought a new Percival Gull aircraft. Very sleek little number and it was very fast, one of the fastest little planes. It was a low-wing monoplane. This was in 1935 and she set up an England-Brazil solo flight record and she became the first woman to fly solo across the South Atlantic Ocean in this plane and she made the England-South America flight as well. And she had a big auxiliary 
80-gallon petrol tank. It completely filled the cabin that had been made for this little craft and it just left her enough room to climb in front of it and take her place at the control, sort of hunched forward. Yeah, and there were the practicalities flying. Oh, you get around them, no big deal, I suppose. Food, toilet. You just do it, don't you? Oh, exactly. And, you know, you could throw anything out the uh, little cockpit, I suppose. But uh, there was a plane that leaked a lot. So whenever she went in rain, that sort of, she was always wet and she had to sort of have plastic bag or something over her head. Yeah, it wouldn't be comfortable. An economy you think you're hard done by sometimes. Yeah. Man, try this. We'll take a break and come back. The story of Jean Batten. She's so well remembered in New Zealand. Uh, for her flying achievements of the 1930s. Really, an age when this sort of adventure was the biggest news. And here she comes, Jean Batten, the 25-year-old New Zealand air girl. Nearly three days behind her own record for the outward flight. Still, it's not bad to be the only woman to fly alone to Australia and back. Jean Batten smashed two records when she reached Port Natal, Brazil. 175 miles further on, she had to leave her plane with broken propeller on a beach and later arrives on horseback to inspect the damage which prevents her flying on. But the 25-year-old New Zealand girl has set up the fastest time for the crossing of the South Atlantic, the fastest time from Britain to Brazil, and she is the first woman to fly the South Atlantic alone. She carried no parachute, life belt, collapsible boat or wireless. A Brazilian army plane takes her on to Rio, which was her original objective. Here, the daring and brilliant girl pilot is welcomed by an admiring throng on landing and has a modest word for the mic. I'm very pleased indeed to have arrived safely and soundly in Brazil and do have, incidentally, created a new record for the London-Brazil flight and also for the crossing of the Atlantic Ocean. And here, being swung ashore, is the little machine which carried her safely on her courageous... Jean Batten are outside of this week. Extraordinary achievements. A very driven mother, obviously a, a part of this. These achievements now, now she's got records and is doing this amazing stuff, flying solo for such vast distances. Oh, yes. She was starting to become incredibly famous and she put out plans that she was going to fly from England to New Zealand. Now, this was going to be the longest flight that anyone had accomplished in the world and she was determined to make it. And she actually just flown to South America. She shipped the plane back to England. She took her mother on one last aerial tour to Spain and France and then on her return to London, she set about on these plans and preparations for the solo flight to New Zealand. Now, she took off from Lim Aerodrome on the 5th of October 1936 and she arrived at Darwin on the 11th of October. Now, she just took five days and 21 hours for that part of the flight and this lowered by 24 hours the solo record which is previously held by Harry Broadbent. That's so quick, isn't it? Yeah. Five days, 21 hours from Kent to 
the Northern Territory. Just amazing, isn't it? And then she flew on to Sydney and established a record of eight days for the flight from England to Sydney. Now, she had this great flying record and the fact that the Tasman had previously been flown solo three times by men, but there was considerable opposition to her plan to continue her flight on to New Zealand. And many people implored her not to attempt the cross of the Tasman Sea, knowing how dangerous that stretch would be. So a lot of people said to her, a friend said to her, why not rest on your laurels and just stay in Sydney? You know, you'll be as famous as you are. You don't have to get any more famous. She also received an offer of several thousand pounds to tour Australia right away rather than fly on. Even the Mayor of Auckland, Davis, he communicated to Batten by cable a pronounced feeling in his homeland that she should not fly the Tasman across to New Zealand. She ended up having a long talk with the Australian Minister for Defence, but there was no official request on the part of the Australian government for her not to make the Tasman flight. But there were a lot of people, Graham, trying to talk her out of this, and the main object of her flight from England was to be the first to establish a direct air link between between Britain and New Zealand. She actually foresaw that Tasman service as a vital link in the sort of empire air communications, and she was just determined to fly home. Maybe a sense of patriotism there as well. Oh, I'm sure. She felt a great affinity to New Zealand. It was definitely her homeland. And she chose the Richmond Aerodrome in Sydney for her departure to give the gull enough room for the fully loaded takeoff. And it meant adding extra distance to her flight, though. But anyway, after two days in Sydney, she waited to receive a favourable weather report and then she decided to take off early the following morning, about four o'clock. It was on the 16th of October. She was granted permission to sleep at the officers' mess at Richmond so as to be on hand for an early takeoff, but as it turned out, an overzealous sentry pacing up and down outside her room prevented her from getting any sleep. <laughs> she had a bit of a rough night, but anyway. Hey, just about sleep on that five and a half day trip from Kent to Darwin, would she sleep? Actually, in those movies, they have her going to sleep and suddenly waking up and the planes and it's kind of almost like a free fall and she suddenly pulls it back. And how true that is, I don't know, but she really did push the limits of endurance of the human body. There's no doubt about it. Yeah. Her little Percival Gull, it was standard in every way except for this extra large fuel tank, which took all the place of the passengers, of course, and it gave it a range of 2,400 miles non-stop and still air. Now the cruising speed was 156 miles an hour and the maximum speed was 178. She was also eager to set a new record time for this Tasman crossing and she said I will be bitterly disappointed if I do not establish it and the best time of the 17 earlier crossings was Charles Um and Scotty Allen's 11 hours and 18 minutes. Now they went from 90 mile beach to Sydney, that was in 1934, April 1934, so she was out to beat that. This is actually before Earhart went missing in what would be similar circumstances um, over the sea, uh, a, a dangerous place to be. 
Yeah, well, everyone knew, of course, it was only a matter of time before an aviator or, or two got lost, you know, and she was definitely attempting something very, very serious. But she took off from Richmond at 4.30am and was soon alone in the darkness high above the Tasman Sea. And about 300 miles out, she ran into a huge bank of clouds. It went up to about 6,000 feet and she managed to get above them and after a while the clouds clouds began to break up so she went down to check her drift on the waves. Basically it was sort of visual flight rules all the way even though she had a compass and everything but the the machine she noticed was drifting considerably. She worked it out she needed seven degrees to offset it on her compass and about 900 miles out from Sydney the storm clouds closed in and the plane ran into really heavy rain. Now the sea became very rough below her and she lost sight of it and she flew on blind just completely through the storm. Her cabin leaked badly and she was absolutely soaked. The gull was taking a a very severe tossing around now. Jean was under very terrific strain, just trying to keep the machine steady and steer some sort of accurate compass course. And she sighted an albatross just as she came through the storm and she said it left her feeling that she wasn't so terribly alone. And then she started to sight things like flying fish and whales and visibility became bad again and she calculated she was approaching the Taranaki coast but shortly afterwards and, and to her absolute relief she sighted the little islands off New Plymouth there and she knew that she was exactly on course. It's amazing. Little sugar loaves, isn't it? Yeah, that's right. Yeah, but she swept in over New Plymouth and she was 9 hours 29 minutes after leaving Richmond. She had gave her the Tasman record and she'd set her heart on and she could see people actually running around the streets and waving her welcome and the pressure was sort of off now and she was naturally very tired but she stepped up her speed and she set course for Auckland. Why not just land at New Plymouth? It's okay there. Perhaps but she'd organised to go on to Auckland and there's actually an escort of four Auckland Aero Club moths went down to escort her on the way back up to Auckland but they were hopelessly left behind by her swift gull. She was a gull and the greatest crowd Mangaree Aerodrome had ever held was waiting for her on her arrival and for some time the crowd had been kept entertained by formation flying and stuff like this 6,000 people they kept being posted with reports of her her coming up the coast so everyone knew she was coming and she was deeply stirred she said as as his machine circled the aerodrome and its famous Auckland girl pilot could be seen through the cabin windows. She really touched the public. She's side-slipping now to lose height and she'll come in this time, I think. Right behind her is the plane from the Achilles and I think there's another government plane alongside while there are four of the Auckland Aero Club planes. She's shut off her engine now and she's losing height, side-slipping and coming straight down. Coming straight down. There she is coming down. She's down about 20 feet now, about 10 feet. She's very nearly onto the ground, just over the tops of those motor cars and very nearly touch them. A beautiful three-point landing she's going to make. Sailing beautifully in and right down in the centre. Down she's arrived. She's here. Here she is. There she is. Right down on the uh, air drum and she's taxiing. I'm just imagining it. How 
thrilling. It wouldn't have happened much at all. Plane all the way and this famous yeah, person yeah. Just all the way down there to New Plymouth and knew the engagement was Auckland, so better come on up. The thrill of that crowd, it must have been great. Oh, it must have been. There were wild cheering. 6,000 people just broke out as she landed and as the plane taxied to a stop there, the crowd, they broke through the barriers and they streamed across the field just to surround her, her craft and there was Miss Batten in her white flying suit and helmet and she stepped from her machine just fresh and smiling and she had no sign of fatigue and she was just acclaimed by this crowd and her father actually was the very first to greet her. All these welcoming speeches at Mungary, of course the Mayor of Auckland, Davis at the time. It's interesting the language of these times. What did he say to her? He sort of rebuked her in an amusing way but he said, you're a very naughty girl and really you need a good spanking for giving us such a terribly anxious time I'm here. I mean... (laughs) What a thing to say, Graham, you know, but, you know, but he said, we knew you could do it, but we didn't want you to run the risk. We glory in what you have done and we glory at your wonderful and magnificent pluck. And that's true, really. It was her pluck that she had, you know. There is a really interesting story about what happened to her after her great adventures, which really stopped almost immediately. Jean Batten, our outsider today. I'm using the same aeroplane in which I flew to South America last November and I have put just the same amount of care and preparation into the organization of this flight so that I trust it will meet with the same success as the others. I feel very sorry indeed to leave England as I've come to look on London now as my second home but I do hope one day to come back again perhaps next year for the coronation. You will have gathered if you didn't know already that she's a New Zealander. And it's for New Zealand that she sets off from Lynn by moonlight. Feats of aviation, which a few years ago used to defy the endurance of men, seem now to be an easy mark for women, and for one woman in particular, amazing Jean Batten, whose crossing of the Tasman Sea crowns a flight during which she broke the solo record from England to Australia. Here's what she said on her last arrival in Australia, and it's applicable today. I want you all to know how pleased and how thrilled I am to be with you here in Sydney this afternoon and to realize uh, that I am so near to my native land. Jean Batten, fascinating life, enormous achievement, a driven mother may be one of the factors behind it, but her achievements are stunning nonetheless. And she's New Zealand's darling. She'd be the most famous New Zealander of the 30s. She'd beat George Nepier. Yes. Now, that trip out from England to New Zealand sort of physically and mentally exhausted her in some ways. And her tour of New Zealand was eventually called off in Christchurch. She she sort of put on this amazing civic tour. It was incredible. She'd turn up in picture theatres to full crowds everywhere. She was pretty great like that. And she spent much of November, actually, in 1936, resting at Franz Joseph Glacier at the government's expense. And that was a kind of a turning point for her, really. In February 1937, she returned to Australia. And a few months later, she completed her last 
long-distance flight from Australia to England. Now, World War II effectively ended Jean's flying adventures and her gull was commissioned to active service. Now, Batten was not permitted to fly it, amazingly, but during the war she was involved in campaigns giving lectures in England to raise money, for actually for guns and aeroplanes, but her flying days were effectively over in, in any sort of long-distance way. She did offer her services to the Air Force, but as long as she could fly her plane. Yes, that's right, and they didn't want her to fly it. And after the war, she retired from public life except for a few anniversary appearances. She sort of drifted in and out of the public view and despite rumoured love affairs, she never married and she continued to live and travel with her mother. All her entire life she had this relationship with her mother and until the mother died on the island of Tenerife in Spain in 1966, she virtually stayed with her now. Batten re-emerged in public life three years later, that was in 1969, and she embarked on a decade of world travel from her apartment in Tenerife as a base. She decided to leave the island in early 1982 and travelling and staying with her publisher and his wife in England she flew to Majorca where she intended to buy an apartment and the last people heard of her in a letter, it was dated the 8th of November 1982 Batten advised her publisher of her new address, now this was the last anyone heard of her and her whereabouts remained unknown until September 1987 when it was suddenly revealed that she died in Majorca 22nd of November 1982. Now this was after she'd been bitten by a dog and she'd refused treatment and she died needlessly from a, a pulmonary abscess. Now on the 22nd of January 1983 she was just buried in a pauper's grave and the reason no one knew for about five years was because she was buried under her middle name, Gardner Batten. Right. So no one even noticed. No one knew where she'd gone or what had happened to her. Her publisher was mystified until finally it came out, you know, that she'd been buried there in a pauper's grave. I don't know, but it may be part of the confusion created by Spanish tradition in that you have a look at Spanish names. You can have about 15 of them and you pick your own surname. Is it Pablo Picasso? Was it Pablo de... You know, he's, he's got a ton of names. And yeah. maybe, you know, your middle name is as good as any other for the Spanish. And she just didn't know that many people in Spain, in Majorca. No. So she died. Oh, what do we do? Bury her. What's her name? Jean Gardner Batten. Oh, well, Jean Gardner sounds right. So she just went into obscurity and she definitely avoided any publicity at all, so none of that helped at all. It's a sort of a sad end to her, really, wasn't it? It really was. But, you know, she's remembered Graham in so many places here in New Zealand. God knows how many colleges and intermediates and primaries have a house named after her up and down the country. You know, a house system, a batten, who's in the batten and all that. Of course, Auckland International Terminal, named after her and her Percival Gull hangs there. And you can go from Shortland Street to Fort Street via Jean Batten Place in Auckland.
Yes, that's right. They're not the only place as well. They actually named a street in Majorca recently after her, Jean Batten Street, or Cara de Jean Batten. A lot of streets are named after her up and down the country, actually. Certainly, um, planes have been named after her. I think Qantas named their first Boeing 737 after her. And there's endless buildings named after her as well. She's so well remembered. But the details, it's the details of her remarkable life that kind of get lost, don't they? And what an exceptional character that she was. A very complex one too. Yeah, Jean Batten and her mother, Ellen, in 1946, they lived in Jamaica. It says that they made friends very selectively, but one was Noel Coward. Oh, that's interesting. I hadn't heard that. Yeah. And, yeah, they definitely spent time in the West Indies. They enjoyed it. And they had a sort of private life together where they'd all the time be relating, protecting each other from from everyone outside. They really had this symbiotic relationship. And, and definitely it was her mother that pushed her into this career of aviation. Man, you know, it's like any great prodigy, I suppose, any great kid prodigy. It's uh, often the parents who devote their entire lives to it. But her mother wasn't very wealthy or anything. Uh, Jean Batten actually funded most of her own adventures, even if it was sort of (laughs) getting together with guys who could help her. Right. I think we can safely assume she employed some feminine wiles. Apparently, she came back to New Zealand in 1977. Apparently, friends thought she was in great financial distress and they appealed to the Prime Minister, none other than uh, 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 Robert Muldoon. Oh, okay. And you know what? He arranged a state pension for her. Oh, that's amazing. It is amazing because she had assets at the time of £100,000, which was pretty damn good. Unbelievable, eh? And into a pauper's grave. Who could even imagine that? Mike Tyson. (laughs) Yes, that's right. She's remembered, as I said. She's had so many awards, but at her birthplace in Rotorua, she was honoured by local Māori. She's after her 1936 journey there, and she was given a chief's feather coat and given the title Hini Otirangi, which is Daughter of the Skies. And I think that's so beautiful, really. She was our Daughter of the Skies. Okay. Tremendous story of Jean Batten. She looms large in our history and tremendous achievements and a fascinating story and something over and above the usual mother-daughter connection, I think. Something very powerful must have been going on there. And what a great inspiration to young women too, I must say. Yes, exactly. They can safely have a career as a commercial pilot without having to be told we'll give you a good (laughs) spanking for being so active. Good stuff. Thank you very much, Jared, and we'll talk again soon. Yeah, cheers, Graham. You arrive in New Zealand, and incidentally, uh, nine and a half hours after leaving Richmond, Australia, and thereby create another record... And actually, today, I'm just 10 days, 21 hours out from England. So in this flight, in which I considered the Tasman only the last half of the whole journey, I was able to fly through from England to New Zealand in the fastest time in the history of the world, and also to make the fastest flight ever 
between the two dominions, Australia and New Zealand. Well, I don't need to add how pleased I am to see you all here to greet me. And I think I can say without doubt, this is the very greatest moment of my life. a gentle reminder that we have a big fat archive of Gerard Hindmarsh's Outsider Tales. There are many, many, many of them. I think we're up to nearly a hundred. I haven't counted, actually. I must! And then I'll be able to give you an accurate number. Not that it really matters. There's more than you can fill in, uh, uh, listen to of an afternoon. So fill your boots. Go there. Go to the Weekend Variety Wireless webpage and check out the archives. It's not just the Outsiders archive. There's the Shipwreck Tales and lots of other stuff. And also, a reminder, if you want to hear anything that's been on in the weekend, we've got almost all the guff uh, from the weekend Guff, I, I use that as a lay term. Um, the technical term, I think they're called articles. At least that's what we call them in the office. Uh, they'll go up on Monday and they'll be available for re-listening. Have a listen to the history of the sun. That was kind of cool, I reckon, anyway, from yesterday. And if you're a regular Sunday listener, you may not know. There's a Saturday version of the Weekend Variety Wireless as well. We kicked off yesterday after 8 o'clock with a big fat astronomy thing. The history of the sun is fun to listen to. Okie doke. Uh, overnight talk coming up 0800 844 747. 0800 844 747 uh, to have your say about pretty much anything you like. Oh, and just another reminder if you, um, if you go to the Weekend Variety Wireless webpage and you click on stuff, that's great. You can do that there. But if you want to carry it with you, we are a podcast. It's podcast hour by hour, so subscribe to any of the podcast providers that are made clear on the Weekend Variety Wireless webpage and you can carry the show around with you at your leisure. So there you go. Alrighty, uh, if you want your say on anything to do with the program, there's the Facebook page as well. That should do. All right, World Cup final tonight. Uh, if you're not staying up for it, um, maybe, you know, you think you might fall asleep before it happens. I'll tell you the final score now. Uh, it's going to be 2-1 to Croatia in extra time. 2-1 to Croatia in extra time. So there you go. That's the result. And now you can go to bed and uh, not have to worry about it. Shall we see how that turns out? <laughs> <laughs> 